We'll be reading from verse 15 down through verse number 17. The Bible says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. These are verses that we are familiar with. If you've gone to church here at White Oak for any length of time, you've heard these verses um, uh, quoted, used in messages. We've even sung verse 15, I think last month on a Sunday evening. That was our memory verse song. I don't know that I've ever preached an entire sermon out of these verses, but that's the joy of walking verse by verse through books of the Bible, is you get to preach on some familiar passages and unfamiliar ones. Tonight we're going to preach a sermon entitled this, The Love God Hates. The Love God Hates. Let's pray. Lord, help us as we endeavor to understand a passage that, uh, Lord, I believe has maybe been misused, misunderstood. Uh, Lord, maybe uh, overemphasized in some places and underemphasized in others. But Lord, a part of your word that is vital and important. Lord, help us decide this evening that we're going to hate the things that you hate. We're not going to play with sin, dabble with sin, be anywhere near sin. We don't want it on us, near us, around us. We don't want to flirt with it, be a part of it. And Lord, as we look this morning, we want to love you. But we cannot effectively love you if we're busy loving on the things that you loathe and despise and hate. And so, Lord, help bring our hearts to a place of clarity. And Lord, help us to distance ourselves from those things that are getting between us and a better relationship with you and others. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, a little girl once visited a hospital to see her sick grandmother. And she noticed while she was there that the doctors and nurses were washing their hands a lot. And then, you know, now in hospitals, they have these uh, they have these pumps on the wall for disinfectant. How many of you have seen this in hospitals? And uh, they'd rub that. No, there we go. Now, no. some volume. Amen. Power. Uh, I thought I was going to have to bring the power tonight, but I guess the sound system is going to take care of that for us. But uh, they rub that in their hands, and, and I'm in the habit, and I'm in the hospital on a regular basis as a pastor, visiting people that are sick. And I'm in the habit as well of uh, using the disinfectant. A little girl, six, seven years old, you turn me down just a hair back there, just a hair would be great. The uh, little girl in the hospital uh, noticed all the hand washing and the disinfectant using, using, and as they climbed in their car to leave from visiting grandma, uh, she said to her mother, she said, why... Do the doctors wash their hands so much? And the mother thought for a minute, and she looked at her daughter, and she said, Well, they wash their hands because they love their health. They love their health. And the little girl said, Well, help me understand, Mom, how washing their hands helps them have good health. And the the little the mom thought for a minute, and she said, Well, not only do they love good health, they hate germs. They hate germs. Germs 
hinder health. You see how that works there? And washing the hands gets rid of the germs. So the doctors love to hate germs. They love to hate the germs. Why? Because the germs make us sick. And so uh, the more precautions and the more things you can put in place to keep yourself obviously within reason from getting sick, the better. I have to say that I have done some praying this week for our, uh, our neighbors in China and this coronavirus that is spreading around China and the many, many people that are sick and dying. I don't know that we know all of the results and the actual numbers. I, uh, there might be some cover-up going on there with the actual numbers. There may not be. Uh, I don't want to uh, speculate there per se, but I will say this. I am praying for them, and I'm also praying that it doesn't come here, and we don't have uh, those struggles. You see the masks people wear, and they're having to stay indoors, and I've read reports of people having to stay on a cruise ship for uh, days, and while that might sound like fun, I think they probably quit bringing stake to your room at a certain point. And uh, I don't know, I think the funness, the novelty of it probably wears away. They're being quarantined and even some cases uh, and isolated incidences that have showed shown up here. You know what? I, I love my health and I hate things that hinder my health. I hate things that bring my health down. I don't want cancer in my body. I don't want uh, diabetes in my body. I don't want those things that hinder my health. Why? Because I love health. In turn, I need to hate the things that are going to destroy my health. You see here how this works. God wants us to love him. This morning we looked at how God is a jealous God. And when he sees us uh, uh, interacting with and flirting with and and being friends with that which he hates. He looks at us and he says, I hate that within you. I don't want you involved in the world. I don't want you to be friends with the world. Why? Because the world hinders our relationship with him. God loves the light because he is light. Conversely, God hates darkness And don't miss this. He wants us to hate darkness as well. He doesn't just want us to avoid it. He wants us to hate it. He wants us to look at darkness and sin being darkness. And he wants us to stay as far away from it as possible. When we lay claim to being on good terms with God and then run over to our little corner and hide in the darkness, and do our sin, we hurt the heart of our Savior. It causes Him to push away from a tight-knit relationship from us. Uh, You remember in John 15, where the Lord Jesus told His disciples, Ye are my friends if, if ye keep my commandments, if ye walk in the light, if you can do what's right and stay away from the darkness. But when we choose to want to walk with God here and walk with the devil or walk with sin over there, God pushes away from us. Oh, no, he doesn't disown us. Oh, no, we don't lose our salvation. Uh, Oh, no, he doesn't stop loving us. But that tight knit relationship is greatly hurt. Now, some churches... Some churches create rules for the sake of bragging about how spiritual they are. Look at these rules that we have and look how godly we are. And there are rules. They create rules. They enforce rules that are not even in the Bible. And I mean, they don't just, they don't just encourage it. They ramrod it down your throat. You know what that is? 
that creates an environment of being pharisaical. These are the people, here is their mantra. Ready for this? Believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think only as I think, eat what I eat and drink what I drink. Look as I look, do always as I do, and then and only then, I'll fellowship with you. That's their attitude is you have to dot every I, you have to cross every T, or I will not talk to you. Why? Because you are below me. You are beneath me. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Now, as far as I know, that's not our church. I don't believe that's our attitude here. Uh, uh, but I have been in plenty of churches where that is the attitude. Let me also say, there was a time in my life where that was my attitude, where I wanted to go around and change everyone because my opinion of standards and rules from the Bible, I was right and everyone else was wrong. I'm glad I have grown enough to see that, hey, maybe I don't always have it all right. I turn back, I turn around and look back at when I was 14, 15, 16, even 18, 22, 23, and I see where I'm at now, and I pray the Lord keeps growing me, and I can see that I have moved on some things that really aren't core to the Bible, and God has showed me that maybe I wasn't very gracious and kind always toward people, and uh, uh, it was my way or the highway, and God said, where is the grace that's there? So that's one end of the spectrum, where you have churches that strongly enforce things that are not even in the Bible. The spirit of them is not even in the Bible, but then you have the other side of the map. Some churches do away with almost all separation from the world. And their motive is that they want to reach as many people as possible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will hide behind, well, we see a lot of people saved, and we see a lot of people baptized, and, and look how many people we run on Sunday morning, and look how big we're growing and going, and, and look, 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 look at our numbers. And I just want to remind that crowd, the Bible tells us that supposing gain is godliness from such turn aside. We're not to just do and compromise whatever in order to grow our church. I believe that if I were to trade in my King James Version of the Bible for a more modern, uh, uh, what some would call a translation, I don't feel that they're accurate. But if I were to trade in the King James for, say, an English Standard Version, and I were to trade in a suit and tie for uh, a more modern type of apparel, and uh, maybe uh, get rid of the pulpit and just sit up here on a stool and, and, and give you a TED Talk with a Bible verse thrown in, and we were to have a, 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 a band up here and, and we were to uh, uh, lower all the, uh, get rid of our dress culture. We were to throw all that out the door and we were just to compromise in every way. You know what? I believe that many of you would leave, but this church would grow. This church would grow quickly. And here's the problem we run into. Churches that, uh, and by the way, all those things I just listed are not necessarily in the Bible. All right? Uh, I want to be careful here. But, but I want to say this, that just growing a church is not the goal. Being like Christ is the goal. Walking with the Lord and, and living a life that hates the darkness and separates from the darkness both individually and corporately, that's what we're called to do. That's who we're called to be. Churches that want to reach people and with the gospel and are willing to do anything, and I mean anything to do so, they end up with a bunch of people in their church that might be saved, 
but they remain babes in Christ for years. Why? What is that? That is a Laodicean church. So on one end of the spectrum, you have the Pharisaical church. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the Laodicean church. Let me just say this evening that it is difficult in this day and age to find a perfect balance. Well, we are not Pharisees and we're not Laodicean lukewarm Christians. We're right in the middle. We're balanced. Now, I want to give you two words by way of introduction here and, and define them for you. This will not be on the screen or necessarily on that half sheet of paper, but I recommend you find a place somewhere to write these down. The words are these, separation and sanctification. Separation and sanctification. And, and, and this might be uh, nuance or this might uh, just be a matter of parsing terms, but let me help you understand the difference between separation and sanctification. Both words are important. Both words apply to First uh, John two fifteen through 17. And I believe both of these words are uh, to be a part of the Christian's life, but they play on, t- they're two different sides of the coin of the same idea. The word separation could be defined this way, being separated apart from things that are evil, being set apart from things that are evil. And so I separate from the world. I'm separating from the darkness. I'm separating from sin. Let's say I grew up in a home where drinking was a regular thing and I, uh, I lived a lifestyle of being a reveler and a drunk and I got saved and I turned my back on alcohol. I separated from the evil. Maybe I'm separating from the party life. I'm separating uh, uh, from wearing uh, 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 clothing that would identify me with a rock and roll or heavy metal band. I am separating from. Notice the word sanctification. So separation is defined as being set apart from things that are evil, sanctification could be defined as being set apart to become like God, being set apart to become like God or to God's work, set apart to become like God or to God's work. So separation, I'm, I'm, I'm setting apart from something sanctification. I'm setting apart to something, to something. They're both important. They're both a necessary part of the Christian life. Um, What happens when you separate and you don't sanctify? You separate from the world, but you don't sanctify to the Lord. You know what you end up doing? You end up basking in your self-righteousness. Look at me. I don't do what they do. I don't act the way they act. I don't listen to what they listen to. I don't dress the way they dress. I don't smell the way they smell. Uh, I don't go to the places they go. Uh, I go to church. I read my Bible, but not for the right reasons. I spend 15 minutes in prayer a day, much like the man in Luke who stood up and said, I thank thee, Lord, that I am not like that sinner in the corner. Was he praying? Yes. But was he really praying? No, he was calling attention to himself. That's separation without sanctification. And then you have the crowd. They want to sanctify themselves, meaning they want to do the work of the Lord, but they don't want to separate from the world. They want to show up to church on Sunday and they want to sing the songs and they want to dress the part and, and look the part and act the part. But on Monday, they go home and they put vile, vulgar 
things on their TV and, and their life is mixed in with the world. Um, I won't use the name because some here may know him, uh, but years ago I was uh, out doing some valet work uh, for um, uh, uh, just side hustle, side type work, and uh, I, I was teaching school at the time, and uh, one of the men there, uh, he was a younger, little younger than me, a uh, young man, uh, he, he showed up to church on Sunday, and man, he wore a tie, he sang the songs, he looked the part, he talked the part, he acted the part, and we're standing out there and we're valeting, there's three or four of us from the church, and there's several of the men that were there valeting, we're, we're not associated with our church, I don't even believe they were saved, and, and this man who went to church with us, carried his Bible, knew the Bible, talked about the Bible, talked about how much he loved the Lord, when the conversation got on to dirty jokes, uh, many of us started to pull away, he stood there and laughed. When the conversation got into music that was godless and, and, and just downright vile and wicked, he stood there and quoted the lyrics and knew the artist. You see, the problem was on Sunday, he was sanctified for the work of the Lord, but he did not want to separate from the world. You see, what ends up here is we end up being lukewarm. We want one foot in the world, and we want one foot with the Lord. We want to hold hands with God, and we want to hold hands with sin, and we want both parties to accept us. Here is the hard truth. Satan does not want you holding hands with God. And God does not want you holding hands with Satan or sin. Uh, you, you must choose sides. I picture someone riding down hill on a fence and they're, they're, they're fence straddling on a barbed wire fence. My friend, you're going to fall on one side or the other eventually. We are called to separate from sin. God hates pharisaicalism. He hates it. In fact, there isn't a group of people in the Bible that Jesus preached to harder than the Pharisees. These are people who acted separated, in a lot of ways were separated, but they were full of dead men's bones. And then you turn over to Revelation 2, and Jesus rebukes hard the church of Ephesus. And then he rebukes hard the church of Laodicea because they were lukewarm. They were saved, but they were not living separated. Last week, we looked closely at a Christian's lifelong journey with Jesus. Or, we talked about what it looks like to walk in the light. We saw the spiritual growth from little child to young man or young woman to father or elder in the Lord. Now, in the next four verses, we get the contrast, the stark contrast of what it looks like to walk in darkness. How God disapproves of a Christian who wants to hold on to the world and be in God's good graces. In essence, you can't. You cannot hold hands with your Savior and hold hands with the sinful world at the same time. These verses tell us, uh, 1 John 2, 15 through 17, they tell us not to love the world. They tell us not to love the things of the world and not to love the temptations of the world. But what does that even mean? Well, let's look at four truths from the, uh, these next three verses, 15 through 17 of First John 2, as we explore this powerful truth, uh, the love that God hates. And point number one of the message this evening is this, Satan's system. Satan's system. Look down with me at First John chapter 2 and verse number 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Well, if we're going to follow and obey this verse, we better understand what it means. What does it mean that we're not supposed to love the world? 
Does that mean we're not supposed to love creation? We're not supposed to love the the trees that grow outside and uh, the birds that fly overhead and uh, a warm, sunny day or a snowfall that blankets a field. When the Bible says we're not supposed to love the world, does that mean we're not supposed to love creation? Well, no, that's not what that means. We're we're told that the heavens declare the glory of God. They they shout, they scream that there is a maker. Well, so that's not what it means when it says Love not the world. What does it mean? Does it mean that we're not to love the people that walk on the earth, uh, the world, mankind? We're not supposed to love mankind. Is that what it means? We're not to love mankind? I don't think that's what it means either. We're told, uh, let's see, we're told to love God. We're told to love our neighbor. We're told to love our spouse. And sometimes your spouse is your neighbor. Sometimes your spouse is, you know, your, your husband or wife. Sometimes your spouse is your enemy. And you know what? No matter which one of those categories your husband or wife falls into, you're commanded to love them all the same. So it's not talking about, we're supposed to love the souls of mankind, their eternal souls. So when the Bible says love not the world, is it talking about not loving creation? No. Does it mean that we're not supposed to love humanity? No. What does it mean when it says love not the world? What God is saying is that there is a system ran in the background by Satan that is meant to oppose God. It's orderly, it's structured, and it is meant to tear down and oppose God, oppose His Word, and oppose His work. Does anyone here this evening question whether or not there is a system in place that is meant to oppose God and oppose His work? I don't question that one bit. I think we can look at the political powers that be in this world and we can see uh, that uh, there is all sorts of evil. You know what? God loves life. Our government seems to hate life. How many babies are killed in the womb each and every year? You know what that is? That's the hand of Satan at work in the background behind us. Uh, uh, How much alcohol is consumed Every day. You know what that is? That's the work of Satan in the background opposing God. How many people will be killed tonight by a drunk driver or uh, seriously injured by a drunk driver? How many people will walk into a school uh, at some point this year and pull a trigger and hurt a child? Uh, uh, Where is that coming from? Is that God at work in the background? No, that's Satan at work in the background. How many people will be distracted from doing God's will? How many Christians will be distracted from doing God's will and growing in God's grace because they're Falling in love with and and flirting with the world. That is the system at place. Notice letter A. It's czar. It's czar. Look with me at John chapter 14. Hold your place in 1 John 2. We're going to look at two verses in John chapter, in John, in the book of John. John chapter 14 and verse number 30. So who is in charge here on planet earth? Well, I will say this. Ultimately, God is in charge of everything. But for the time being, he has put Satan in charge. Look at John 14 and verse 30. Hereafter, I will not talk much with you. For the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. Who is the prince of this world? Speak to me. Who is the prince of this world? It's the devil. Turn over to John chapter 16. And look at verse number 11. Here Again, Jesus is speaking. It says, of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. 
I, 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 uh, I, I look at Christians who are surprised at how sinful the world gets, and even despondent how the world gets, uh, how sinful the world is, and I look at them and say, why are you surprised? Satan's in charge. And he hates God and he loves sin. Don't you think that he's going to go about promoting sin and wickedness and filthiness? Hey, listen, I was disappointed when uh, the uh, decision a, a few years ago to bring in uh, homosexual marriages uh, uh, passed through the Supreme Court. I was disappointed, but I wasn't shocked. I wasn't surprised. Satan's in charge of this world. Satan hates God's definition of marriage. He wants to rewrite it. Why should any of us be surprised by that? There is very little that you could tell me that a human being has done that would make me go, what? Why? Because Satan wants to oppose God at every turn. And he is in charge. This is why we're commanded to not love the world. Why would you love something uh, uh, that is run by a czar, run by a prince who hates your king? He hates your savior. Letter B, it's course. It's course. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2 and look with me at verse number 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Turn over there with me if you don't mind. And look at verse number 2. Um, uh, Satan doesn't wake up every day with just, hey, let's see how disorderly we can make it with no plan. No, Satan has a plan. He is working a plan in the background. And please, uh, I don't want to get conspiratorial or name uh, organizations, but please understand that the governments that are in place around the world, uh, they were given a purpose in Romans uh, for ex- being an executor of righteousness on behalf of God. But in most cases, most of the world powers, Satan is in the background working and pushing and pressing his agenda through uh, through uh, laws. And also, I want to add here that just because... Because it might be legal uh, within a, a country does not mean that it is legal in heaven. Does not mean that it is legal for a Christian. Look at Ephesians 2, 2. Wherein in times past ye walked according to the course of this world. The course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. Look here. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. The children of disobedience. That rebellion that's being led by the czar. The prince of the air. And what's he doing? He's leading them down a course of destruction. This is the reality of the world we live in. Now, uh, I want to explain it to you this way. If I was Satan and I wanted to tear down uh, what God uh, had built, I would have those things that were as opposite God as possible. We'd put them on this end of the scale. And let's say that following God or light, we use light and darkness. Let's say light is over here and darkness is over there. If I'm Satan, I'm going to have traps over here that are obviously overtly wicked, uh, that are uh, 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 satanic in nature. And then I'm going to put traps everywhere I can all the way up to the light, but that's still darkness so that I can tempt trip up and put a stumbling block between all. Uh, the problem with many Christians is they say, well, I'm not watching Marilyn Manson bite cats off their heads, so that means I'm okay. Do you know that Satan doesn't just have traps in the world of Satanism, in the world of Satan worship? Satan has traps all the way up here to keep you from walking purely with the Lord. For most of you here tonight, uh, tomorrow morning, the temptation's not going to be for you to go out and commit murder. The temptation's going to be for you to not read your Bible. You hear me? 
For you, the trap is one step out of the light into just a little bit shade of darkness. He knows that if he can get you to take one step this direction, that slowly you'll drift from the Lord. He has a course planned out for your life that leads to your destruction. And my friend, he has weaponized every institution in this world to tear you down. Every institution in this world, government, and uh, he, he, he wants to break up families. He'll use education systems, and he'll use uh, uh, friends, and he'll use entertainment. He'll use TVs. He'll use uh, a shopping malls. Every median he can get his hands on, he is seeking to pull you away from the light. Why? That's his course. Letter A, speaking of Satan's system, we see its czar, its course. Letter C, notice its corruption. It's corruption. If you go back where we were in 1 John 2 and you turn just a couple of pages to the left, you'll be in 2 Peter. Look with me at 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 4. Speaking of how corrupt this world is, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, and then we'll look at chapter 2 and verse 20. It says, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped, look here, we've escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. There's so much to unpack in this verse, and uh, this isn't our principal text tonight, so we'll move on, but I want you to take note here that the world is corrupt. I I don't know about you, I want to stay away from that which is going to corrupt my faith. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 20. I love the choice of words here. Uh, uh, just a, a, a maybe a page over, maybe even on the same page. Look at chapter 2 verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world. Now we, uh, we live in a day and time where being green is being pushed on us pretty hard and taking care of the planet is being pushed on us pretty hard. And, and I have to say God has called us to be stewards of what he has given us. And, and I think you ought to do everything you can to take care of planet earth, but I don't think you ought to worship planet earth. Amen. We ought to take care of it. Uh, When I think of the pollution, what I think of is some big trucker that's driving down the road and smoke just blowing out of that stack and raising up in the sky. Or I think of some guy who's driving a car that's burning oil. You ever been stuck behind someone going down 15 and you can't get away from them, right? And they're just burning oil and they're filling up your car with fumes and you're gagging and coughing and and there's this blue smoke or white smoke almost that's in the air and, and you say, this guy's not only polluting planet Earth, he's polluting my airspace. Uh, I was standing out here this morning uh, prior to church, and I looked across the, the river there, and there is a factory, and smoke is pouring out, billowing out of that chimney from that whatever company that is that's over there. The pollutants that rise up, uh, and, and we see, and we know that they're under great attack by the uh, the, the Earth-loving folks. And listen, again, I'm for, uh, but I want to make this point is Christians. This world is not polluted only by by toxins and fumes. This world is first and foremost polluted by sin. It's everywhere. It's corrupt. It's polluted. It has become the accepted norm, not only by the world, but even by Christians. 
Satan's system. You must understand, to really get this passage down, you must understand, 1 John 2, 15, who is in charge and what he's attempting to do. Satan's systems. Number two, notice the Christian's separation. The Christian's separation. Look back with me at 1 John chapter 2 in verse number 15. It says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John is good at giving ultimatums. Here is his ultimatum. Be in the world, but don't love the world. You need to exist here, but you're just, you're just a sojourner passing through. You're just a traveler Passing through. You're not to fall in love with this place. You're just to move on. Um, uh, my wife is from Peru. She loves Peru. And uh, oftentimes in our home, she'll put Peruvian music on in our home. And it's, it's, it's clean type music. But uh, traditional music that's more from the mountains. Lots of flutes and that kind of thing. And she'll play it. And, and I know when she starts playing it, there's this urge for her to... She's homesick. She feels a, a little bit homesick. And while she's falling in love with America and her life here, she also misses her roots where she grew up. Now, me on the other hand, I'm an American boy through and through. I love hamburgers and hot dogs, and I love a pulled pork barbecue and brisket, and, and, and I'm an Americana apple pie all the way. I love July 4th. I love baseball, and I love American football, and, and I think the other kind of football is dumb, and I just offended half the church, and uh, throw the pigskin through the air and kick it through the uprights, and uh, I, I think the other kind of soccer is goofy, and, and, and everyone just fakes at the end of games or wastes time at the end of games. Drives me crazy. Crazy! I'm an American boy. And listen, I love when I'm driving down the road and I look out my window and I see a baseball field. I've been to Peru a couple of times and when I look out the window, I don't see any baseball fields anywhere. I see soccer fields everywhere. I mean, they're everywhere and, and, and that's the sport. Now, I'll go to Peru and I'll spend a couple of weeks there and I'll come back. And, uh, you know, uh, in Peru, what you hear when you get off the plane is, Bienvenidos al Estado Peru. Uh, estamos muy agradecidos que ustedes están visitando este país. And when I come back to the U.S., you know what I hear? And it's music to my ears. Welcome to the United States of America. And I say, ah, English. Yes! And it's not just English, it's American English. It's beautiful. We are to feel the same way about living here. This is not our home, folks. Our home, we're just passing through. Our home is laid up in the sky well beyond the blue. And it's difficult because we've not been there. But when we walk through this world, we're not to have an affection or an affinity toward it. We're to have an affinity toward the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible tells us, set your affection on things above, not on things of this earth. I'm trying to lay the groundwork for you for why it is we separate. Boy, this world is vile and vulgar. Its system is meant in every way to oppose God. And God has called us to push it away the way it has Pushed him away. Turn over to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 
with me. Second Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. Maybe no church in the New Testament struggled more with separation than the church of Corinth. At least not uh, more. Uh, there's not a, a church where more detail is given. I would put the church of Corinth and the church of Laodicea maybe in this same camp. But Second Corinthians chapter 6, uh, uh, they had become folksy and friendly with the world. They were uh, embracing worldly uh, uh, traits and sinful traits into their church. And allowing sin to run rampant in their church. Look at verse 14. Uh, the, uh, the apostle Paul here tells them, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial or the devil, or what part hath he uh, that believeth with an infidel? Now, I've heard these verses used for marriage, and 100% agree those verses apply to marriage but they don't just apply to marriage they apply to business uh getting into business with someone and uh getting involved in work dealings with people and friendships with people hey you are light you have no business being in fellowship or having fellowship with darkness and 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 what what fellowship what concord hath christ with an infidel look down with me at uh, uh, verse number 16 and what agreement hath the temple of god with idols the idols do not belong in the temple of god for ye are the temple of the living god as god had said i will dwell in them and walk in them and i will be their god and they shall be my people wherefore look here come out separate come out from among them and be separate saith the lord and Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. What is an identifier of someone who is a Christian? They have separated from the world. It's not so we can look down our nose and act like we're better than them. No, it's so that we can walk holy with our God. Turn over to Galatians with me. Galatians chapter 6 and look at verse 14. I love how descriptive Paul is with the church of Galatians on this topic. I love the line he draws between a Christian who's walking in the light and a carnal Christian or someone who's saved but backslidden who is walking in darkness. Look at Galatians 6 verse 14. Uh, It says there, but God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world, the world that Satan's systems are crucified or is crucified unto me and I unto the world. This verse describes a line between a Christian who is separated to Christ and uh, 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 and the world. And what is the marker that stands between the Christian and the world? It is the cross. It is the cross. If you have been saved, you are to crucify the world. You're not to love it. You're not to embrace it. You're, you're not to make it a part of who you are. You're to crucify the world and let the world be crucified to you. It is to be of none effect. I think here is the time for this quote, and here it is. Uh, a, a, a boat is okay as long as it's in the water, but the water is not to be in the boat. You see, it's dangerous if the water gets inside the boat. The Christian is to be in the world, but the world is not to be inside the Christian. You see, we live in the world, but we're not to be of this world. Hey, can I tell you that as I put this message together this evening, the Lord began to point out some things in my life and said, you have fallen in love with this. And 
You have fallen in love with that. And to you, it's benign. To you, it's, it, 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 it isn't uh, uh, wicked. Uh, to you, you have excused it and, and, and you've, you've dismissed it and, and you've made, uh, you've given your reasons why there's nothing wrong with it. But God says, that is a system. That is a part of the world and you're not to give any affection to it. The affection is to be to me. We are to separate. You see, um, carnal Christians, they look at an object or they look at uh, an ideology. They look at an opportunity and they ask this question, what's wrong with it? What's wrong with it? Uh, Christians who really want to walk with God, they look at it and say, what's right with it? How is this going to make me more like the Lord? How is this going to help me to fall more in love with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? So we've looked at Satan's system, number one. We've looked at the Christian separation, number two. Let's go from ideology. Let's get into the practicality of the word. Number three, notice Satan's scheme. Satan's scheme. And so Satan has his ways of getting us to fall in love with the world. Yes, he knows the Lord has saved you. Yes, he knows he's lost your soul, and he, he, he's not going to take you to hell if you're saved. But he wants to trip you up and keep you from a walk with God as much as possible. He wants you to fall back in love with Egypt the way the Israelites did. They look back over their shoulders, and they long for the leeks and garlics that were in Egypt. They forgot about the taskmaster and the slaves and the hardships. They missed, they missed that which appealed to their senses. Look at 1 John 2.16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Let's get practical here this evening. Letter A, notice, lust of the flesh, lust of the flesh, and notice below that, our stomach, our stomachs. Look at Proverbs, uh, uh, I'll read for you. Proverbs chapter 23, just listen intently here. Proverbs chapter 23, verses 1, 2, and 3 says this, When thou sittest to eat with a ruler, consider diligently what is before thee, and put a knife to thy throat, if thou be a man given to appetite, be not desirous of his dainties, for they are, listen here, deceitful meat. Proverbs 23, this is the same chapter further down, verse 21 says, For the drunkard and the glutton shall come. Come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. First um, Corinthians chapter ten verse thirty-one puts it this way: Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Uh, I don't want to get real scientific this evening, but this is something I've been doing some studying and some looking into. Uh, but you know what we eat greatly affects our temperament. Greatly affects our attitude, our spirit. It affects our, uh, uh, our energy levels, our ability to function and operate. God gave us this body. It is a temple that he lives in. And we are to run it in a way that allows us to be most effective for the kingdom of God. Unfortunately, many Christians are pounding their body with food and substances that inhibit their ability to serve God. Don't aid them in serving the Lord. You know what that is? That's my flesh lusting for something that's not helping me, it's hurting me. Now, I don't stand up here this evening and preach on this topic because I've got it all figured out. I think you can look at my waistline and you can tell that I probably don't always eat very healthy. And I'm going to be honest about that this evening. 
My brother is uh, graduating from Pensacola Christian College this May uh, with a nursing degree. And I was spending some time on the phone with him uh, about uh, two weeks ago when we got on the topic of the bacteria in our stomach and how science is doing a lot of studying on stomach bacteria and how it greatly affects not only our waistline, but it affects our attitude. And that bacteria in your stomach, and there, there's millions of bacteria, I believe, that uh, make up, uh, compose what that is. And uh, that, that bacteria in your stomach has a lot to do with what we eat. And God says, whether ye eat... Now, don't, I, some of you, I'm losing you here. Please pay attention. This is important. Whether we eat or drink, or whatsoever we do... We're to do it to God's glory. When was the last time you looked down at your plate of food and say, Lord, does the food on my plate bring you glory? Because uh, falling in love with food is not falling in love with God. And these things are going to pass away. These things will be, not be around anymore. And God has commanded us to not be gluttons. And we live in a country where gluttony has become an accepted norm. It is something where we look at and we almost as Christians mock it and make fun of it. God says it's a sin. God says what you put in your mouth, whether by food or drink, that needs to bring glory to me. Our stomachs, lust of the flesh, what my flesh wants. Now, on this let me say that it is necessary to eat. You can't live unless you eat. But some people eat to live. Other people, they just live to eat. And i got to be honest with you, at times I live to eat. And as I was putting this message together this evening, the Lord said, boy, you're really strong on your standards in certain areas. But on this one, you're pretty weak. You're pretty weak. And you know what? This one's just as important to me as the rest of them. Our stomachs. Notice next, our sexuality. Our sexuality. From turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 18. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18. And uh, for the sake of the audience in the room, I'm going to be very careful. And In fact, I've cut out some of the verses I would have otherwise read. But look at verse number 18. I'll speak in generic terms here. Um, uh, verse 18 is, two, uh, is very short here. Uh, really, the concept is summed up in the first two words. But look at it together with me here. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Flee fornication. Do you know why, I want to just say this here, please, please listen. Do you know why many churches encourage a dress culture that is old-fashioned in nature? Do you know why many churches have a dress code on their youth group for youth activities because they're trying to get their teenagers and they're trying to get their people to run in the opposite direction of fornication. Now, that's biblical. And that may make some people uncomfortable. Uh, and by the way, where I draw the line and where you draw the line, there's, a, there's some room to disagree and gracefully disagree. But God has commanded us to run in the opposite direction of that which would entice, that which would provoke, that which would tempt a man to lust or even a woman to lust. We are to clothe ourselves in a way that is separate 
from the world. We're to flee fornication. Now, this verse isn't just talking about, uh, uh, it's not just talking about the act of a man and a woman being together, uh, a marital act outside the bonds of marriage. It's talking about any sin that is sexual in nature. God has given us this body, and there are desires that these bodies have, and, and they are to be kept within the boundaries that God has given them to us. I believe this, if we could take sexuality and put it back inside of marriage, a whole large percentage of the problems in our culture would just flat out go away. Flat out go away. Many, many, many of the problems we have today, many of the illnesses and sicknesses, many of the diseases that are spread, many of the brokenness in children growing up in dysfunctional homes, that is a result of a man and a woman who have taken liberties to do it their way and not followed God's plan. And God says, listen, I have given you this, and I have given it to you to be exercised within the bonds of marriage alone. Your body is a temple. Look at verse 19. What? I, I, I had a, a, um, a Bible teacher uh, when I was in the ninth grade. This is when I lived in Alabama. He, he read it this way. What? You bunch of morons? Are you this dumb? Do I really have to say this? What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Don't tell me how to dress. Don't tell me what I can and can't wear. Don't tell me who I can and can't flirt with. Don't tell me how I can and can't behave. Don't tell me uh, what the Bible says about sexuality. Uh, I'm my own person. I'll do it my own way. And I would just say, be careful. Be careful, your body is a temple. The Holy Ghost lives in there. And we are told to run in the opposite direction from fornication. We are told to separate our sexuality. Uh, I'm going to say this, and every man in the room, I believe, uh, or most of the men in the room, uh, a, a large majority, if not all of them in the room will understand this. Ladies, I wish for one day we could take you and let you be a man. And you could see yourselves the way we see you. Can I tell you what would happen if for 24 hours every woman in this world could see women the way men see them? Uh, Most women in this room would throw half of their wardrobe out and go buy new clothes. You say, you men are a bunch of perverts. No, we're not. We are what God made us to be. And what God makes is no mistakes. We live in a world that is trying to objectify women. And ladies, you're not called to cozy up to the line and see how close you can get to it. You're called to separate. Oh, not so you can look down your pharisaical nose at someone else. Not so you can act like you're better than someone else. So that you can be light in a dark world. So your light can shine brightly. Lust of the flesh. Lust of the flesh. Many, many men struggle with pornography. Many, many men uh, struggle with lust. Many, many men have their sexuality outside of the boundaries that God has intended. And God, uh, God tells us we're not to love the world. We're not to love Satan's system. We're not to be involved or fall to Satan's schemes. Lust of the flesh. Let her be noticed. Lust of the eyes. Lust of the eyes. Uh, uh, we see there in 1 John 2, 16, love uh, for all that is in the world. The lust of the 
eye, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the lust of the eyes. What are, what is, what does that mean, lust of the eyes? Notice below that, our sight, our sight. Turn over with me to Romans chapter 7 and verse number 7. I believe Romans 7 verse 7 lays out very clearly what this is. What shall we, I'll begin reading, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. And then he gives us an example of how we know sin by the law, by laying out the tenth commandment. For I have not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet. Uh, uh, How is it that we covet? With our eyeballs... We see something that someone else has or something else that we don't have and we want it. We lust for it. We desire it. It begins with what we see. Uh, Exodus chapter 20 verse 17 is the law that's being described in Romans 7, 7. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservants, his maidservants, nor his ox, nor his ass, or his cattle, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. You're not to want that which God does flat out does not want you to have. You're not to look across the street and see what the Joneses have and want that. You're to be content with what you have. Lust of the eyes. I have asked myself this question. Why is it? That I personally struggle with covetousness. Because at times I do. Why is it at times I struggle with wanting things that I really just don't need? Why is it that there are times where uh, I am, I am, uh, there's this, in, uh, this, this desire that, I, that seems to be out of control to go buy and, and get this and get that and I, I have to have it. I know inside that it's not going to make me any happier in the long run. But I, I, I just have to do it right then. And there's this covetousness that at times just sweeps over me and takes me. Anybody else with me this evening? Don't leave me out on an island here. Am I alone? I don't think I'm alone, am I? Here's one of the reasons I think why we struggle with this. Because we, are, we, we live in a world where there are so many commercials. We, we constantly have promotions and things being put in our face. There was a survey done in 1993. Now, you all saying 1993, that was a long time ago. That's almost 30 years ago, Pastor. That can't be applicable today. Listen, uh, I'm going to read for you some statistics that I believe are far worse today than they were in 1993. And when I I pulled this up and discovered it, I was blown away. Uh, Are you all familiar with the company Nielsen? Nielsen, they're the ones that uh, they do all sorts. Oftentimes, if you uh, have a TV provider, you have to agree to terms with Nielsen. They monitor what you watch. Uh, uh, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, uh, ESPN, all the cable channels, they know how many viewers they have from Nielsen. This was a Nielsen company uh, study. They said that uh, by the time, or rather, that the this is back in 1993, for a 30-second commercial... For 30-second commercials, every year, on average, each child watches 20,000 30-second commercials. Now, this is when I was a child, so this would have been very applicable to me. With that number in mind, by age 65, the average 65-year-old will have watched 2 million 30-second commercials. Do you understand it's worse today? 
I have, um, I have an app on my phone that aggregates news from all sorts of sources. So I can read it. Every news source I pull up, do you know what's embedded in that news story? Advertisements. They're everywhere. How many billboards do you drive past on the way to work? How many stores do you drive past? You walk through the mall and there's these posters in the window. And you know what they're all screaming at you? Buy my product. It'll make you happy. Buy my product. It will make you happy. Covetousness is shoved in our eyes from birth. We live with it. It is the world. You know what it is? It's Satan saying, do it my way and you'll be happy. You say, well, pastor, how am I supposed to combat that? Well, first of all, recognize that, that the commercialism of our society is a problem. It, it pushes us toward covetousness. Number one, first, you need to note that in your mind and keep that in the forefront of your mind on a regular basis. And second of all, make a decision that you're not going to be content with things. You're going to be content with Christ. Our sight. Notice next on this idea of our, uh, of our lust of the eyes. Notice our simplicity. Our simplicity. Turn over with me, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter number 6. I'm aware of the time. We're going to wrap it up here shortly. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and look at verse number 6. These are verses we use regularly in church, but we're going to look at some other verses that we don't as regularly look at. Look at verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare. And into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Who does this passage apply to? Can I tell you? It applies to every single person sitting in this room right now. You want me, you, if, if we could just pull someone up from an impoverished country in the world and drop them in our presence, do you understand we're all rich in comparison to that person? I don't know that uh, there are too many of us in the room this evening that does not battle with this desire to love money. And loving money, it hurts relationships, not only with, with God, but with others. It, it, it tears down and destroys. It is falling into Satan's snare, Satan's trap. Can we, all, can we all come to an agreement on something here? God did not call you to live on earth to be rich. He called you to live on earth to love Him. I'm not preaching against being rich, because everyone in this room is. Whether you've got a dollar in the bank or ten million in the bank. Just the standard of living with which we live our lives, we are rich. I don't care if you had overdraft fees this week. You are rich. And unfortunately, it's still not enough for us. Look down at verse number 17. Here's Paul's challenge to Pastor Timothy. And so to, the, to those in here that uh, this would be for Pastor Morales and I, but Brother Kyle, you're studying for ministry, and so this would apply to you as well. 
Look what Paul tells uh, uh, his preacher boy on how to instruct his church. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded. Don't be arrogant. Nor trust in uncertain riches. But, but rather, or but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works. That's where we're to be rich. Ready to distribute. Willing to communicate. Uh, let me just pause right there for a minute. Do you know one of the greatest problems uh, in churches is that we bicker and fight over things that in the background money is the root cause and we don't communicate with each other and then we end up with greater problems on our hands? Here he says, don't be rich in money, rather be rich in good works. Uh, 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 be willing to communicate, willing to distribute. Look at verse 19. Laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on. Eternal life. Let me just add here there's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with having lots of money. There is something wrong with trusting in your money. There is something wrong with loving your money. There is something wrong with believing that that is the foundation or the safety net below you. Uh, And the Bible here calls it uncertain riches. Do you know that the richest person that goes to White Oak Baptist Church, something could happen and all your money net could be uh, ripped out from under you tomorrow? Is your trust in that or is it in the Lord? We're to live our lives in a way that's simple. Not always pushing for more luxurious. Not always pushing for nicer and better. If you are living that way, then you have a problem. You have bought into Satan's system. Lust of the eyes. Let her see. Notice pride of life. Pride of life. Let's wrap this up. I'm going to limit my, my comments here the rest of the sermon. Notice below that our status. Our status. You know how, how Satan got Adam and Eve to fall in the Garden of Eden? He waved status in their face. If you eat this fruit, then you will be like a god. Your status will improve. Listen to Genesis 3.5. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So the very first thing Satan does is he waves the pride of life in Adam and Eve's face. He says, you will have status. And then he used the same, it's such a powerful tool, he used that in Jesus' face. Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, again, the devil taketh him up, speaking of Jesus, to do an exceeding high mountain. And showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. You know what, you know what Satan was waving in Jesus' face? Status. Status. We, we muscle and elbow and fight so we can one-up each other and be better than each other. We want that status. Below that, notice this, our sense of superiority. Our sense of superiority. Luke chapter 9, verse 46 through 48, Jesus is speaking here. The Bible says, Then there arose a reasoning among them, which of them should be Greatest. This is the disciples. They're bickering. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and sat by him. And said unto them, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. 
You know what he's saying here? He's saying here, you want to be great? Be little. You want to be great? Be little. My friend, we fall in this trap of wanting to be elevated. And God says, if you want to be elevated, then be demoted. The pride of life. Which of these is tripping you up, Christian? Can I tell you there are areas in my life where I'm falling prey to all three of them? Are you willing to be harder on yourself than I could ever be? Are you willing to look yourself in the mirror and say, these are areas I'm struggling with. The Lord needs to help me. Number one, Satan's system. Number two, the Christian's separation. Number three, Satan's scheme. Number four, the Christian's stimulus. The Christian's stimulus. First John chapter 2, verse 17 says, And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. What is our stimulus? That we get to abide forever. One day this world's going to disappear. You know, all the restaurants will be gone. The sports teams will all be gone. Um, um, the, um, uh, the material goods that you have will burn up with a fervent heat. That house that you crave to live in, it won't be around anymore. The comfort that you enjoy will be burned up and destroyed. And God is going to give us a new heaven and a new earth to live in. <clears throat> we should not waste our time focusing on these things. And for sake of time, I won't read the passage, but in Luke 7, 24 through 28, God says that John the Baptist is, uh, is the greatest prophet that had ever lived. You know what's fascinating about John the Baptist? He lived in the desert. He ate, what did he eat? Locusts and wild honey. Hey, I'm not signing up for that bacteria in my stomach, amen? Um, he was a wild man. What is John most famous for saying in John 3? He said, he must increase, but I must decrease. John just kept finding ways to humble himself, live a more base lifestyle, a simple lifestyle, a separated from the world lifestyle, a lifestyle that represented the light. I finished the sermon with this poem. Listen closely. I cannot give it up, the, the little world I know, the innocent delights of youth, the things I cherish so. Tis true I love my Lord and want to do His will, And oh, I may enjoy the world and be a Christian still. I love the hour of prayer. I love the hymns of praise. I love the blessed word that tells of God's redeeming grace. But I am human still, and while I dwell on earth, God surely will not grudge the hours I spend in harmless mirth. Uh, These things belong to youth, and it's natural light. My dress, my pastimes, and my friends, the merry and the bright. My father's heart is kind. He will not count it. He will not count it ill that my small corner of the world should please and hold me still. And yet outside the camp twas where my savior died. It was the world that cast him forth and saw him crucified. Can I take part with those who nailed him to the tree and where his name is never pra- praised? Is there the place for me? Nay world, I turn away. Though thou seem fair and good, that friendly outstretched hand of thine is stained with Jesus' blood. If in thy least device I stoop to take a part, all unaware, thine influence steals God's presence from my heart. Farewell, 
Henceforth my place is with the Lamb who died. My sovereign, while I have thy love, what can I want beside? Thyself, dear Lord, art now my free and loving choice, in whom, though now I see thee not, believing, I rejoice. Shame on me that I sought another joy than this, or dreamt a heart at rest with thee could crave for earthly bliss. Those vain and worthless things, I put them all aside. His goodness fills my longing soul, and I am satisfied. Lord Jesus, let me dwell outside the camp with thee. Since thou art there, then there alone is peace and home for me. Thy dear reproach to bear, I'll count my highest gain. To thou return the banished king to take thy power and reign. Christian, do you love the world? Do you love the things of this world? Or are your affections set on things above? Lord, we ask tonight that you'd help us to really take a hard look into the mirror and remember that we are your temple. Lord, that you dwell in us. You have called us to walk in the light and to stay away from the darkness. You have called us to hate that which you hate. Lord, you do not want us to love the world. You want us to love you with all our heart, our soul, and our might. Lord, would you convict sin this evening? Would you help us to repent from wrongdoing? Would you help some habits to change, Lord? May we be Christians that separate from darkness and sanctify to walking in the light. Lord God, please convict where conviction is needed. Encourage where encouragement is needed. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet with our